inviting our mind, body, and spirit into the space made sacred by our presence. Let us take a boy, my English. Let us take a collective breath as we prepare for this time of reflection, celebration, and worship. And as we prepare for this season, season of thanksgiving and gratitude for the many blessings that we receive and that we, at times, recognize and give back to the world. Let us invite gratitude into our hearts.
absolutely beautiful. And how beautiful is this day? How crisp and clean the air, how clear the sky, how full of life the teeming earth, and we are alive. Yes, we feel the beat of our own hearts, the pulsing of life in our veins, and the rhythm of our breathing. We come into the silence of this time with gratitude for this day. Our gratitude stirs us to praise and to sing our thanksgiving. Our loneliness draws us here into the company of others. Our restlessness draws us here into these moments of quiet. Our longing for the spirit brings us here before the mystery of the holy. Our desire to heal our own wounds and the wounds of our world brings us here to renew our strength and our hope. Each of us comes to dip into the well that nourishes our hungry spirits, and each of us comes with our own cup of goodness to pour into the well. May we drink together, and may we be strengthened by our bonds of love and peace. Good morning. Please stand as you're able and body your spirit as Dr. Irene Ratner comes down to kindle the chalice, or over. We will join her as she leads us in the chalice lighting words that are printed in your order of service. We light the chalice this day in gratitude for our being in community with one another. We light the chalice in thanksgiving for all the blessings of life. We kindle the flame also for that greater community of which we are a part, the whole human family. May this light serve as a beacon of hope and love to all. May it bring warmth, healing, and joy into our lives and the world. Please join us for our opening hymn number 21 in the gray hymnal. I believe it's a reprise of For the Beauty of the Earth. <coughs>
like the children to join us down here for a very special story that our worship associate Megan Chapanik is going to share. And she has a helper too this morning. All right, everybody, come on down. So is everybody ready to be out of school this whole entire week? Yay. I bet that's what you're all thankful for, huh? helper Annie here. Annie, could you get out our little friends in the bag? Because this is a story about a family. How many of you have a family? We all have families, don't we? And all of our families look different. This family is a family of dogs. It's a family of dogs, and there are all different kinds of dogs in this family. There are dogs with fine pedigrees who go to dog shows and win lots of fancy dog awards. There are dogs who were born on the street and they're scraggly, kind of like this dog. And there are, oh, like that dog, okay. There are dogs from the shelter and then there are dogs who had been born into the family. But what was important is that they were a family. They ran together and they played together and they did all sorts of doggy things together. They tumbled together and they fought and they nipped and they had fun. They all loved each other very, very much, even if sometimes they growled at each other. Do you ever growl at your family? No, no, never. Oh, oh, we have some growling. Oh, but you know what? I bet that no matter how much Raina and Jay and these other puppies punch each other and hit each other, I bet they love each other very, very much. Even if sometimes the puppies worried about whether or not there were enough biscuits in the tin on the counter for all of them. Even if sometimes one of the puppies didn't feel very good and growled or snapped at another dog, they all loved each other very, very, very much. Just like we all love our families no matter how much we growl or snap at each other. Every night as the moon rose above, the family of dogs all went outside and they sat in a great circle on the grass and they watched the big moon rise above them. As the moon rose... Thank you, Linda. What a beautiful piece. Thank you. We have a lot to be thankful for. This past week has been very full. Very full in more than one way. We had a, a beautiful interfaith Thanksgiving service at St. Catherine of Siena Church on Belcher Road, where I and our chorale had the opportunity to participate with other faith communities. And you guys rock, I have to say that. And it was so wonderful to see you in that beautiful sanctuary with your stoles and to see the Catholic choir without their stoles. So, you know, isn't that a little ironic to 
see Unitarian Universalists show up with their vestments at a Catholic church. So I'll let you figure that one out. But moving on, we had again an amazing, amazing beginning to our festival, Ruah, which is our monthly multicultural, all right, yeah. Monthly multicultural spirit experience where we, our aim is to bring people together across cultures, faiths, traditions, and backgrounds, especially families, to come together, to get to know one another, and to really celebrate the spirit in so many wonderful ways as it's manifest in different cultures and traditions. So we were off to a rousing start on Friday with Fred Johnson, Barry Skeet, Kathy Costa, our Indian musicians, Nirmala Rajshekar and Tanjur Bhubati, and as well as Papa Malik Pai and his company, his dance group from St. Pete. It was awesome. So, and we had a beautiful concert yesterday with the Indian musicians as well, right in this space. And here we are. It is good to be together. Now this year, among other things, Lalita and I have been going back to school again. We're taking eighth grade, advanced history, advanced math, advanced science, and advanced English with our younger son, Yashasvi. You know, given that we went to school in India, it was time we went back to school here anyway, so kind of improving our, our knowledge base. And my son is engaged in this National History Day project, which uh, his teachers consider to be a great honor and a blessing, and parents consider it to be a millstone around their necks. Uh, given the kind of research we're ex I mean, that's right, we are expected to do. <laughs> Wasn't a Freudian slip at all. That, that when I took Yashasvi to the Library of Congress when we were visiting Washington, D.C., one of the research librarians, when he found out what we were up to, just rolled his eyes. I kid you not. He just rolled his eyes that we were having to do all this for an eighth-grade project. But the good thing is it's given me an opportunity to engage with this nation's history, both through the textbook versions as well as other versions that I'm now revisiting Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Actually, I bought a, a youth version that's fantastic that I'm having Yashasvi read alongside his regular history stuff. So he gets a different perspective. So part of the the study has been studying about the pilgrims and getting to know their journey to this country. So here goes my reflections. On September 6, 1620, after a series of delays and mishaps, a group of pilgrims finally set sail aboard the Mayflower from Plymouth, England to North America, or as British comedian Eddie Izzard likes to say, they started out in Plymouth, and they ended in Plymouth. Wow. Now, they were aided in this voyage by the Virginia Company, which arranged for them to settle on land within its boundaries on the eastern coast of North America. Now, the 102 passengers who were aboard the ship were divided into two different groups, the Laidners and the Strangers. 
The Leitners were the pilgrims who had left England to escape religious persecution and had settled briefly in Leiden, Holland. And the Leitners really did not like the other group because they were, first of all, a very close-knit group, and they found these other passengers who were aboard the ship to be quite crude and threatening. And so they dubbed them the strangers. Now the strangers were servants, merchants, and fortune seekers who were looking for a fresh start in the new world. Now they were very free-spirited and independent in their ways and even in their thinking that they were not going to let a bunch of orthodox and religious radicals to tell them what to do or how to believe. So needless to say, there were some tensions on board the ship as it journeyed across the Atlantic. Now, the journey itself was smooth sailing for the first half of the voyage, but the latter half was replete with strong storms and crosswinds which left the passengers bruised and battered, sick, and travel-weary. And they lost their way as well, and that didn't help matters. But finally, on November 9th, after almost two months at sea, they spotted land, which they later found out was Cape Cod. Now, since the ship was blown north of its course, the pilgrims ended up landing outside the limits of the Virginia Company's land, and so technically did not have the permission from the King of England to settle there. Now, this is all high school history. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, and in fact, remember the dates quite well, too. After all, isn't that part of the American spirit? So, but, you know, allow, indulge this uh, newest to-be citizen to kind of regurgitate this stuff with you. Anyway, some of the wiser ones among both groups recognized that the survival of every person and the future of the colony depended on their ability to work constructively together. So as they got close to Provincetown Harbor, they worked out a basic agreement for self-government and civil community once they got settled, which came to be known as the Mayflower Compact. So I want to read to you what the Mayflower Compact says. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof, we have hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod the 11th of November in the year of the reign of our sovereign Lord, King James of England, 1620. Beautiful document. Now, this compact served the settlers quite well 
as did their willingness to elect and follow the dynamic and strong leadership of John Carver first and later William Bradford. And these very ragtag group of people, these immigrants, found a way to live together despite their differences. Of course, they didn't have to deal with Department of Homeland Security or the Immigration and Naturalization Service, you know, get pulled over and, you know, be ticketed because of how they looked or whatever. But those things came later. Um, now, the colonists initially assumed... Now, this is all not part of the script. That's why I'm kind of going back and forth. The colonists initially assumed that the southern New England coast was uninhabited. And this was partly true because whole settlements of native peoples had been wiped out by the plague brought by earlier European settlers. And the surviving tribes were in conflict with one another as they struggled to establish supremacy over the emptied coast. But for both the native inhabitants and the European intruders, the whole world in front of them was new and uncharted. The forces that would shape their lives were unprecedented. The future was rather unpredictable, insecure, and presenting some very bewildering and risky situations at every turn. Now, we all know something, not enough, about how the rest of the story unfolded. But what we need to recognize is that our nation is culpable for having shaped what one-sided information we got from the early Europeans into a neat, beautifully packaged, self-serving myth of national origin. And that myth has been repeated so often and so many times that everything that happens in that story seems not only inevitable, but somehow divinely ordained. Which is also something that we see in the story around the so-called first Thanksgiving feast. I sometimes wonder, you know, if, if the Native Americans had recorded something as to what their perspective was on that so-called first Thanksgiving, and how it would have been from their side. The, interesting to look at that. But perhaps we should consider the possibility that what happened was not all inevitable, but that some things might have been different. Was the overall history of relations between the colonists and the native people is varied and complicated and painful. And there is no way to escape the fact that in the end, it is a history of annihilation and decimation of not only Native American people, but their culture and their tradition, and the unchecked plundering of natural resources. So I think it is important for us, as we move into this season of gratitude and get ready to come together as family and friends, while we need to be grateful not only for the ties that bind us together, 
as people, as families, as communities, that we also need to tread with a sense of humility and a sense of sadness of the cost that has given us the freedom, the liberty to not only enjoy being a part of this country, but also to show our gratitude for it. And yet, there are messages in the midst of this history regarding what makes for right relations, what destroys those relationships, what actions protect the coexistence of diverse peoples, and what actions will destroy that peace and coexistence. In this history, you can see the effect of particular players. Some were visionaries. They were peacemakers and leaders who, acknowledging the insecurity of the situation and the potential for human greed, selfishness, and impulsiveness, sought the common good by creating behavioral covenants like the Mayflower Compact or the compact or the covenant that the early pilgrims established with the Massasoit tribe. Now these covenants seek at a moment of clarity and accord to bind members of a community into an agreement, a mutually agreed upon agreement, not only with one another but with their best selves and their highest values, intentions, and aspirations in the sight and presence and witness of their God. Throughout the early history of New England, both civil compacts and religious covenants shaped our national character and created the foundation that allowed fledgling communities to survive. The tradition of covenant, which binds a religious body together, is an unbroken tradition that continues to this day, and we, Unitarian Universalists, are among its inheritors. A direct line can be drawn from the Mayflower Compact to the Cambridge Platform of 1648, which laid out the basis for congregational polity, allowing congregations such as ours to be autonomous, self-sustaining, self-supported, self-managed groups of religious bodies. And it later on moved on to the Unitarians. There is also a very strong connection between the compact and the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the ideals of democracy and self-government on which this nation was established. Now, we can and actually must keep this history alive, alive now and in our own choices. This history need not be totally sealed in the past just because it is painful or it includes certain acts of genocide but it can breathe into our current endeavors and the challenges we face today, be it economic uncertainty or the widening gap between the rich and the poor, the lack of civility and commitment to the common good among our leaders, the gradual evisceration of the safety net that supports our elders, the poor, the children, and veterans, and above all else, the serious challenges we face to the environment and to peace. Edwin Friedman, the late and very insightful systems analyst and rabbi, once claimed, this was in the 20th century, that the United States was gripped in fearfulness and anxiety. 
He said, if we are to have any societal health at the end of the 20th century, we must have leaders who have a spirit of adventure. We need people and institutions that take a trusting relationship that, with that which is yet to be, rather than an anxious determination to hoard and protect what is currently possessed. We need people with enough faith who, in spite of the present confusions and struggles and limitations of today, believe that there is good reason to go forward with gratitude and thanksgiving. End of quote. Now, what Rabbi Friedman seems to be saying is that we need a new social covenant that builds on the covenants of the past, a new Mayflower compact, if you will, to help us rebuild our society where justice and equity are made more visible. But to go forward with gratitude and thanksgiving takes more than a recognition of good fortune and giving thanks for it as we normally tend to do during Thanksgiving time. You know, the praise God and pass the cranberry sword. You know, that kind of a thing, attitude. I'm not referring to that one. Instead, I'm referring to what Charles Handy in his book, The Hungry Spirit Beyond Capitalism, a quest for purpose in the more modern world, calls the greater hunger. He writes, in Africa, they say there are two hungers, the lesser hunger and the greater hunger. The lesser hunger is for the things that sustain life, the goods and the services and the money to pay for them, which we all need. The greater hunger is for an answer to the question, why? For some understanding of what, of what life is all about. So the greater hunger is what lies at the heart of religious thanksgiving. It helps us to feel gratitude for all that we have been given and blessed with. But it also impels us and at times compels us to unclench our fists to not hold things close to ourselves and recognize that our very prosperity of being the richest nation on earth can not only threaten our capacity to give generously, but it can also jeopardize our conscience. As is being contended by those involved in the Occupy movement. Now, I just want to say something about the Occupy movement that has spread all over the country. First of all, it is something worth celebrating. You know, we love to preach about free speech, but it's actually the free speech that we like. You know, we don't like the free speech that we don't like. You understand what I mean? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go all the way out. So. If, if the Tea Partiers had the right to demonstrate whatever their issues were, the occupiers have a right to demonstrate with what the issues are. We need, to be, we need to look at it the way it needs to be looked at. And for Unitarian Universalists, it's also worthy of celebration because it is truly a demonstration of the fourth principle of Unitarian Universalism that asks us to covenant to affirm and promote the democratic process and the right of conscience, which is what people are doing. I'm not saying it's perfect, and I have issues with it too. Some of the statements that are coming out, some of the things that are being done, 
All of those, yes, we can quibble with. But the reason it is spreading to other cities across the country is because there is a public outcry of frustration and anger that the protesters have taken to the streets to draw attention to the fact that our economic system has not only failed to protect the most vulnerable among us, it is now preying on the majority for the benefit of only the few. So the Occupy protests we need to see as a wake-up call for all of us that we are all, as citizens of this great country, are in great peril. And that we have been for some time, and it is time to wake up. So I find it is not at all surprising that Americans, especially young Americans, who have always felt were being a little apathetic and too fixated on their iPhones, their Blackberries, and their Nintendos and, and PlayStation 3s, and, and hanging out on Facebook and doing stuff that was looking as if they were too self-absorbed to do much else, to suddenly see a bunch of them in their own way stand up and say, enough is enough. I am sick and tired, and I want you to pay attention and do something so that I have a future too says something. So, for too long, and this, you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat or a Naderist to understand or appreciate this. For too long, we have seen attention, coddling attention, being paid to banks that are too big to fail. While the plight of the poor and the working class goes largely unnoticed. For too long, we have been pitted against each other, using what we believe or value against us by those in power, by a corrupt economic system that has pushed us and pushed us to consume more and more and more, addicting us to get what is ours at any cost. The cost, my friends, is too great, and it is leading to not only dissatisfaction, but it is affecting the soul of our nation. So I want us to really think about something that Jim Wallace wrote in his recent blog on Sojourners. Jim Wallace said, we need to invite the Occupy movement into our churches this Thanksgiving season. He says, our faith communities and organizations should swing their doors wide open and greet the occupiers with open arms, offering them a feast to say thank you for having the courage to raise the very religious and biblical issue of growing inequality in our society. And he continues, concentrations of wealth and power, unfairness in our political process, the loss of opportunity, especially for the next generation, and the alarming rise of poverty in the world's richest nation are all fundamental concerns for people of faith. It's time both to embrace and engage this hopeful movement of young people who are articulating the underlying but often unexpressed feelings of a nation which by a three-quarters majority believes with the protesters that the economic structure of the country has become unfair and skewed to benefit the most wealthy." End of quote. 
If we were to do that, it could be the beginning of a powerful relationship between faith communities and the leaders of an emerging generation that seems so clearly and passionately committed to creating a more equitable, better, and peaceful world. And that's something I feel is a thanksgiving covenant that we each could think about, remind ourselves, and maybe even commit as a community to further. So may it be. Amen. Thank you. Preach it, Neil. Preach it. Go ahead. <laughs>